Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. An ordained minister has decided to give up God for a year. How the heck do you just up and become atheist after being a pastor what i'm most worried about right now is figuring out how i can live openly and honestly i am finally free to be me i have no idea how to find friends or become a part of a community that's not religious what does life look like after church after religion after god that's you know that that's it in a nutshell this is the life after god podcast a conversation on the space between belief and unbelief and beyond with your host, Ryan Bell. Hey friends, welcome back to the Life After God podcast. This is Ryan Bell, your host, and this is episode 44. I have a really great conversation to share with you. Uh, A few weeks ago, I recorded this uh, conversation with my friend Kyle Jones, and uh, I will tell you a little bit more about Kyle in just a minute. Uh, but at first, a few news type items uh, for you to uh, be aware of. If you missed last week's episode, uh, it was a live show with Kester Bruin. Uh, I recorded it live uh, a week ago, Saturday, August the 6th at the Level Ground headquarters here in Pasadena. Level Ground's a cool organization that works at the intersection of faith and gender and sexuality, trying to create generative conversations using art and film and so forth. Uh, great people uh, doing really good work to sort of advance the cause of peace and justice and equality uh, in the LGBT community. So um, thanks to them for that and uh, a little bit more hopefully about them in the near future. I'd love to have uh, a couple of their founders and so forth on the show. But uh, the Kester Bruin conversation was fantastic. I, 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 I don't know if I've ever had that much fun uh, in a conversation. His book, his new book is called Getting High. And uh, we talked primarily about his book. I kind of went systematically through the various uh, topics that he addresses there and wove, he w- weaves these things together so beautifully uh, to talk about the human impulse to, to transcend limitations, the human limitations that we are saddled with. Um, one of which is our groundedness. We, we don't have wings. We can't fly. Uh, we also have this sense of transcendence about us that we want to uh, somehow experience something beyond the limitations of our consciousness. And religion is a big part of that human attempt to transcend uh, human limitations, including death, and to live forever. So he, he just beautifully weaves these things together. He's been doing this research for this book for a long time. I really encourage you to go back and listen to episode 43 if you haven't done so already. And I'm already starting to make plans about having Kester back on the show for a follow-up because there were about three or four pretty involved questions that I didn't get a chance to ask him. So 
uh, look forward to having him back on the show. Also, you can find his book online, Getting High. I will uh, put a link to that in the show notes uh, of this episode as well as I'll uh, edit the last uh, episode's show notes to include the link to his book. I really encourage you to go buy that book. I didn't get a chance to plug that uh, because the show was live and I was just you know worried about the time and I just cut the recording and I didn't really uh, promote his book. So I wanted to do that today. So go to Amazon, uh, search for Kester Bruin's book, Getting High. Uh, I'll also provide the link as I said. So here's something I'm excited about. Um, two things, actually. One is that next weekend, uh, the 20th, the weekend of the 20th of August, I am going to be going to Boise, Idaho to visit Brian Peck. Uh, Brian, as many of you know, has been a volunteer working with Life After God for the better part of six or eight months, I'd have to say. And he primarily works these days on the social media aspect of Life After God. He creates the memes that you see online on Facebook and Twitter, and he also uh, manages our Facebook page. So if you hear from him, some of you that have written into the page, uh, you're hearing um, usually from Brian, um, and then he <laughs> rattles my cage to get back to people. And he's been a huge uh, support and help, especially as I've been busier with my day job. And uh, I'm going up to his place uh, to do a little brainstorming about the future of Life After God, some new things that we're planning uh, to roll out in the coming months. And that same weekend that I'm in Idaho with Brian is the one-year anniversary of the Life After God podcast. And we will be recording the one-year anniversary episode while I'm there uh, in Idaho uh, with Brian. And we'll spend a little time reflecting on what we've accomplished and what the highlights of the last year have been as well as and primarily looking forward uh, to the coming year and what we anticipate and what we're excited about. So watch for that next week. That'll be a, a really a special time for me, I know, and I hopefully for you as well. The following weekend, uh, when I'm back here in LA, uh, I'm involved in a really interesting conversation. And I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago on the show, but I'm, I'm going to be in a conversation with Sean McDowell. I'll, I'll tell you who Sean is in just a minute. Uh, but it's um, going to be moderated by Justin Brierley. And Justin is coming over to, to the United States from the UK where he is the host of a, of a popular radio show called Unbelievable, question mark, on the premier Christian radio uh, uh, network. And he has a, is a very popular apologetics um, and debate show where he brings on Christians and atheists, um, agnostics, various types of uh, people involved in faith and non-faith, and he uh, pairs them together uh, for these conversations, really interesting conversations. If you've never heard of Unbelievable with Justin Brierley, I really recommend that you search that out. Uh, there's a podcast that's easy to find, and you can listen to the show on his website as well, and uh, I'll provide the links uh, for that. But he's coming to the United States, and he's, for the first time, doing a live uh, show. I don't think it'll be broadcast live, but it's going to be recorded. It's going to be before a live audience at a church. And um, my conversation partner, he's invited me to be a part of this. And my conversation partner is Sean McDowell. Um, and uh, Sean is assistant professor in Christian apologetics at Biola University, which is a really conservative, I would say, uh, Christian university here in Southern California. He's also the son of the quite well-known Josh McDowell, uh, who's the author of several well-known books, including Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Um, so he's continuing the family tradition of apologetics 
Sean himself is the author of several books, including Is God Just a Human Invention? and 17 Other Questions Raised by the New Atheists, and more recently, A New Kind of Apologist. So um, if you want to search out a little bit more about Sean, his, uh, his website is just seanmcdowell.org, and Sean is spelled S-E-A-N, uh, seanmcdowell.org. He has a lot of videos and articles and links to his books and so forth that are there. And, uh, you know, Justin is well known for hosting and moderating great, really fair conversations. So I'm going to be leaning on Justin quite a bit. But I would be lying if I didn't say I was a little nervous about this. I don't, I don't really know what I'm up for. But that will be uh, here in Southern California at a church called Church Every Day in Northridge, California. I have to say, every time I say church every day, I just kind of get chills. You know, I just, uh, the idea of church every day just, um, kind of sounds terrible, but, um, but they're really sweet people and courageous to host this kind of conversation. So I'm looking forward to their hospitality and, and meeting all the good folks at church every day. Um, uh, it's August 27th, uh, at 6.30 PM. Uh, Justin will speak for a little while and then he'll moderate this conversation and then there'll be a Q&A with the audience. And I know a couple of people are flying in to Southern California to participate in this uh, or to be in the audience. So I'm very grateful for that. I will be, I think, relatively alone in this large audience of Christians. And uh, so I'm I'm just, uh, you know, I'm just going to put on my honesty hat and do the best I can. So anyway, that will be available online uh, when it's uh, whenever Justin gets a chance to put that up. I don't know exactly what the schedule is for that, but if you can be in Southern California at uh, the church every day in Northridge on August 27th at 6.30 p.m., uh, I would be most grateful, and I'll buy you a drink afterwards. All right. Um, our show today is a conversation with my friend Kyle Jones. Kyle used to live in Southern California. He lives in Arizona now. When I first met Kyle, he was at Claremont Graduate University, and he... Um, is a student of religion, even though he himself is an atheist. Uh, he works with religious people. He's the founder of something called Interview an Atheist at Church Day. And I'll put some links to his uh, website and so forth uh, in the show notes. And you can see uh, basically the kind of work that he does. But essentially, he books himself and other atheists at churches in which he's interviewed before the church audience um, to help Christians uh, learn a bit more about you know, what atheists really are instead of the caricature of uh, that's so common among uh, Christians and other religious people about atheists. Uh, he's also um, the founder of Claremont Journal of Religion and Ahmadis and Atheists for Freedom of Conscience. Ahmadi is a branch of Islam that uh, Kyle's been uh, pretty involved with. He's also a widely published author in the fields of philosophy and religion. And I'll, as I said, put some links to his social media and his website and so forth in the show notes. But I'm grateful to Kyle uh, for being on the show. And without any further delay, here is my conversation with Kyle. Hey, Kyle, welcome to the Life After God podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. It's uh, long overdue. Um it's, uh, it's a pleasure to you know talk to you on the record, as it were, after uh, hanging out for a little while, a few a couple years ago. But you've moved recently to Arizona, I think, right? Yes, yeah. I I, I haven't melted fully, but I'm I'm getting close. <laughs> it's this summer must be intense out there. I mean, I'm from San Diego, so this is basically where Satan dwells. This is that's the it's the pit of Hades. It's 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 worse. Um, th that's a nice description. 
it, I always talk about like feeling like magma on my face. <laughs> so um, you're just melting. I'm basically melting uh, from the inside out. Wow, that's terrible. Yeah, I, but it, I like it out here. I was once uh, on my way to Puerto Vallarta, and our flight connected in Phoenix, and then we got delayed, so we missed our connection, and we had to spend the night in Phoenix. And it was the summer, and it was like, and it was like, uh, like a hundred and twenty degrees or something like that. Yeah, we've been dealing with a regular. 100 to 120 every day. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, I thought it was bad here. It's been pretty rough in L.A. With it, hitting the hundreds quite frequently. But anyway, people didn't tune yeah. in to listen to us chat about the weather. Uh, <laughs> so it's great to have you on the show. Um, uh, unlike many of my guests, uh, I've, we've actually uh, met and hung out a couple of times in real life. You've been over to my house for a barbecue We've done uh, a little panel discussion together in the San Diego area. So we know each other IRL, uh, but it's cool to have you on the show. And uh, I, I want to talk about some of the work that you're doing. But before we get into your sort of activism work, um, wh- why don't we start with, as I often do, with uh, a little bit of your backstory, a little bit of your um, religious background, and how you evolved uh, to the place you are today. So maybe start with like your earliest memories of religion and, and faith. <laughs> yeah, so I wasn't raised in a religious household. My father and my mother were pretty apathetic, and secular, agnostic. And when I was 17... I converted to an evangelical form of Christianity. Uh, My sister was a Christian at the time, and she sort of uh, brought me through the typical kind of Romans Road, Billy Graham sort of thing, and I got involved in a local church and totally converted, uh, went, went, you know, head first into the deep end as as you would say so yeah um i totally converted into a born again christian believer and i went from there to become a youth pastor and i was a youth pastor for know, three or four years at, at a church and then after that i kind of church hopped here and there but i was interested in ministry you know, much like what you did for a, a long time and uh, I went off to seminary uh, in Washington and did my undergraduate work in theology and in and ministry and all of that stuff. What, and school? So, what school did you go to? I went to a small Lutheran school called Faith Lutheran. Okay. Uh, Faith Lutheran Seminary uh, up in Tacoma, Washington. And then when I finished there, I went to Boston University to do my master's degrees and uh as has been known to happen when you when you kind of go off outside of your comfort zone and your your bubble and your fold and you start examining all of this stuff critically and historically and philosophically uh, you know a lot of difficulties can come up right. and uh, you know you hear this typical story about the uh, the christian minister that goes off to secular school and gets exposed to all these different ideas and then changes their views. And I'm pretty much one of those stereotypical people that mm. 
went off to grad school and started studying this stuff. Um, everything from the languages, the Greek and Hebrew, to the hermeneutical issues of interpretation, to the historical debates about what the church is and what it means to be Christian, uh, all of these philosophical issues and everything. And um, when all of those issues arose, I had this cognitive dissonance. Mm-hmm. I I couldn't reconcile my beliefs about Jesus or the Bible or God or anything uh, with this new information. And I was very, I was in a very tumultuous place. I, I didn't know which way to go. And there was a particular, you know, a couple particular times, people always talk about this moment of deconversion. I never really had that. Like I had a I had a moment of conversion, really, right. but mm-hmm. I never had a moment of deconversion. It was a long, you know, two year arduous process of deconstructing lots of different beliefs that I once held sacred. And I just felt like compelled, it's scared, but compelled to follow my conscience and my reason where it would take me. Right. And I felt like even if God existed, God would understand my desire to search and go where my conscience led me. No, I I totally relate to that. In fact, I remember writing something really similar to that when I did my year without God, which was like, if there is a God, he will appreciate me really wanting to understand and really seeking after the truth. I mean, as a fairly fundamentalist Protestant myself growing up, I was taught to seek the truth, and yes. uh, you may have you may remember from your you know from your theological days about the Bereans that Paul wrote about you know that <laughs> and Paul praised the Bereans for not just taking his word for it but going back to seek out whether these things that he said were true. And I remember you know Bible teachers, pastors, evangelists talking about the faithful Bereans who would really investigate and not just take a preacher or a, a person or an author's word for it. And, and so I thought, you know, a few years back when I decided to do Year Without God, I thought, well, this is, this is what I've been taught to do, right? This is what I've been instructed to do to really put truth to the test. Yes. Yeah, and I, I, I felt very much the same way. I mean, when I was a Christian, I was one of those Christians that would go to church and I would have my Bible. I, I, I always rocked the ESV because I always thought Whoa. that was the best. I was also Reformed, right, so I was, yeah. I, I was a Calvinist. And so I had a very, very high view of Scripture, of course. Uh-huh. And um, But I, I was very strong on you know, studying everything in order to be able to defend my faith, right? to give a, as Paul says, a reason for the hope that lies within. Right. And uh, I, I didn't want to be that type of Christian that was scared of the monster in the corner. I wanted to confront it. So I would go to church with my ESV, my Satanic Bible by Anton LaVey, my Tao Te Ching, my, and I would bring all these things to church, you know, <laughs> oh <my> and, gosh. <laughs> and uh, you could expect a response from some of the elders and other pastors. They were like, well, why are you bringing these things into this sacred place? Like, well, if your faith is so weak 
as to not be able to investigate, not be able to look something else in the eye and confront it and try to not only understand it but relate it to your own view, then what kind of faith is that? Like, to me, that's just a... I was always against this notion of kind of ironically following the herd, right? Like, even as a Christian, I wanted to not be that one Christian that just believed whatever the pastor said, just believe. I was always critical. After the end of the sermon, I would talk to my pastor. I was a youth pastor. I would talk to the pastor and be like, wait a second. Do you realize what that verse is actually saying? Like, do you you know what the Greek uh, is is mentioning there? And and it was always this tension, right? Like, Mm. I wanted to investigate. And I think that thirst for hunger or that hunger for... Uh, education, for uh, intelligence, for developing a Weltanschauung, a, a, a kind of uh, intellectually honest philosophy of life, really was the, the motor that drove me ultimately out of my Christian faith. Yeah. And uh, it's ironic because, as you said before, Acts 17, you know, lots of this Pauline stuff about being you know, ready to apologetically defend the faith, actually did the opposite. It it, it made me realize that uh, defending the faith and searching for truth meant not just searching for what truth I want to be there, not just truth that confirms what I already hold, but right. truth, truth that actually changes me, truth that actually... Confronts you. Confronts me, exactly. And so I was very much that way, and I think... The natural, you know, way that I am, my personality is to investigate, and that was very problematic, especially in a church setting, as I'm sure you know. Right. You know, you don't want to corrupt the youth of Athens, right? Right. right. So uh, it didn't really work having this desire to be philosophical and investigate while also being in ministry and maintaining a kind of Christian identity. It, It just did not fit. So were there a couple of one or two like theological or um, philosophical issues that were like the breaking point for you? Because for me, I tolerated a lot of cognitive dissonance. And then there were a couple of things that really were the icebreakers. I mean, were there a couple of things you could point to that were like, okay, that's a bridge too far? Absolutely. What uh, what was it? Luther called it the water tower experience or the, the, the mountain experience. Right. Um, yes, absolutely. So once again, I had this very high view of scripture. So once the, once that started getting dismantling, lots of other beliefs fell by the wayside, right? Like if, if the Bible wasn't the inerrant word of God, if it wasn't the inspired direct revelation of God, then it just seemed to me to be another one of these human constructions, right? These, all these different books on manuals and on how to live life and what to believe. And once that high view of scripture started falling down, lots of other beliefs like about Jesus or the Trinity or uh, beliefs in souls or afterlifes or gods or anything like that, they all started to fall. What was the, what was the thing that caused you to doubt the high view of scripture? investigating it historically and especially with the languages and all the different hermeneutical issues like we i remember break that that down for us because i don't know that everybody knows what hermeneutical 
issues okay, are. Okay, yeah. So the different ways that you can interpret the text, mm-hmm, right? So mm-hmm. Luther, for instance, because once again, I was Reformed. I had a high view of the Reformers, Calvin, Luther, Zwingli, John Knox, and all of these people. Yeah, the Protestant and, Reformation, yeah. Exactly. So uh, what Luther would say, he would say that you interpret the vague and the difficult parts of the text in light of the clear, perspicuous parts of the text. But then that begs the question, who is to say what parts are clear and what parts are vague? Right. Right. So once again, if you, it it then becomes, the Bible then becomes what you want it to be. It becomes a, uh, a Rorschach test. And at that point you realize, I mean, you're, I'm sure you're familiar with this, how many different books are there out there debating one particular line from one particular book from a New Testament epistle? I remember, you know? the, I remember the day that I picked up a, a commentary on the book of Romans, and it was two volumes. It was probably a cumulative thousand pages, and the book of Romans itself is probably about like 15 to 20 pages. And, yeah. you know, if it's like, I, and I had this moment of like, if it took a thousand pages, to explain what these 15 pages mean, <laughs> I, this is crazy. Yeah, that, that sounds like something by Karl Barth. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was actually uh, his son uh, who wrote the um, the Anchor Bible commentary on Romans. Um, oh, interesting. Also Bart, yeah. I yeah, believe that's so, the one. So, so it, it, to me, there was all kinds of other things, right? The different stories about the resurrection and how to reconcile them. The different uh, conflicting stories, like just for instance in the book of Jude, right, uh, in verse 9, it talks about, it's either verse 7 or verse 9, it talks about how Enoch said this and this and this. Well, the Enoch there, they say is the seventh from Adam, but as we know, the actual Enoch that the writer is quoting is a pseudepigraphal writing. Like, it, it's right. a it's a it's an early 2nd century BCE uh somewhat gnostic text so if you if we're you know it once again you get in these these get in these quandaries where someone like luther has such a high view of scripture thought that the book of james was should be burned like straw you know it, it and once again the patristics the early church fathers from jerome and augustine on tertullian all these people you know they they also had things like the apocrypha in their in their canon Right. Right. And so once again, it, it just is not so simple as this kind of God just hands it down like Moses's tablets or like King James only people where it's just like, that's it. It's that clear. No. Anybody who reads that long ass book knows that it's I, not anybody. Lots of people realize that it's so complicated. It's so complex. Like, not only just the Sitzin Laban, the situation in life in which these people are writing, but their political aspirations, their biases, their ways of viewing history, their political aspirations. Right. Once again, it's it's a human product, and that that lowered my high view of Scripture when I realized it was a human product. And then once again, if I don't have this high view of Scripture, of course I could have taken the liberal Christian's way of kind of examining uh, it, taking it with lots of grace and charity and still thinking about it as kind of an important spiritual work. 
Right. But to, to me, that didn't fit still. It, if that is an important spiritual work, just because it's value in Western society or uh, in the world, it doesn't mean it's, you know, it doesn't show anything about its veracity or truthfulness. It or just it's shows. inspiration of like God, it, like divine inspiration. Exactly. When I started reading Gnostic texts like the Gospel of Thomas, or I started reading uh, Eastern philosophy, like I said, the Tao Te Ching or uh, the Nietzsche Ren Buddhist texts, or the, yeah, yeah. The, the Lotus Sutra, Confucius, all of these things, I started thinking, well, to be honest, I'm, I'm in no position to say that one is more valuable or inspired than another. Right. And then I'm also reading all this other atheist secular stuff as well. So I'm thinking, what, where am I going to place the barometer? You know, yeah. sometimes, sometimes I would read something from Bertrand Russell and be way more moved and inspired than I would from anything from uh, the biblical text. Right. So that, that was a big one, right? So that once the Bible became errant, became fallible, became a human construction, right. then lots of my other beliefs fell as well. Yeah, I mean, that makes so much sense to me. And I think probably a lot of people listening are going to really relate to that because we were raised, people like you and me and others that were raised with this, as you call it, quite, quite accurately, like this high view of scripture, we were raised to hold the text. I mean, Seventh-day Adventists theoretically don't have a verbal inspiration view of the Bible, but in yeah. actual practice, most Seventh-day Adventists kind of do have that kind of view of the of the text. Um, I used to talk about like official Adventist theology and then folk theology, which was kind of the theology in the pews that just sort of evolved regardless what the scholars wanted. So the scholars can protest all they want, but pa pastors and evangelists are the ones that are really driving sort of the mainstream view of the Bible and, and morality and all the rest. And for the most part, people were taking the Bible de facto as the words of God. Um, yes. And uh, so that, that was a huge challenge for me, too. And I sort of took that liberal path that you described of saying, well, it all depends on how you interpret it. If you look at it this way, if you look at it that way. But uh, it all seemed like so much gymnastics to me. Like you had to stand. It's sort of like when you look at one of those, you know, a painting and you squint and you stand just in the right spot with the light hitting it a certain way. And everybody that looks at that painting, as any maybe any good abstract art would do, sees a little bit something different or interprets it a little bit differently, um, which is fine and lovely and wonderful. But then you can't take normative judgments from a painting yes you know you can't say this painting means x yes and if you contradict that you're going to hell you know <laughs> it's like no the <laughs> absolutely the painting is open to a multitude of interpretations that's what makes art wonderful uh but then you can't at the same time say it's like this normative judgment absolutely and it also comes down to personality i feel like a lot of times my earlier personality was to think in terms of black and white, was to be rigid and full of certainty and to do psychological splitting, right? Us versus them. Right. Even as a Christian, it was like there were all these other Christians that, or people that identified as Christians that I didn't think were. Because right. they didn't, they did, especially Seventh-day Advent, I mean, not just especially them, but you, Seventh-day Advent. Since we're talking about that. Yeah, exactly. Seventh-day Adventist, I, I told my friend that I do, uh, my, my Seventh-day Adventist pastor friend, Shane Ackerman, I tell him, well, you weren't Mormons, but you were close. 
Right. You know, and so same historical and, period. Exactly, and so it's one of those things. Obviously, with with um, William Miller and uh, Ellen White and others, uh, it's it's a it's very tricky. And and to me, it, it's this personality thing, right? Like in a lot of ways, you want to see what you want to see a particular thing. Like we're 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 obviously social animals that want confirmation of our beliefs. We want to be certain. It gives us a sense of identity a sense of dignity, a sense that this whole chaotic experience of life can be wrapped together. It can be presented as a package. You can put a golden thread or a silver lining or a narrative on this chaotic experience of life. And it just seems way too simplistic now looking back. Right. It's, it's not. Life is complicated. It's murky. It's muddy. It's troubling. It's distressing. It's beautiful. It's all of these things. And my personality has changed yeah and, and you know it's 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 also you're gonna you're it's one of those things where a lot of people think like the bible defines them they don't define the bible and to me it's not that way at all people define the bible any right? text but, any text I yeah mean, i mean i think any any written document like if you pick up a novel that was published last week and and five people read it and get together and talk about it, they're going to have some common experiences, but they're also going to have some really unique experiences because something the author wrote, completely unbeknownst to the author, resonates with my childhood or whatever. Like, And I'm like, oh, that's what really spoke to me. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember giving sermons and having people come up to me after my sermon and say, oh, that thing you said, and they would quote a little something and say, that's really like what hit me. And I thought to myself, that wasn't my point at all. Yeah. I, I wasn't trying to make that point at all, but that's what that person heard. And usually it was at least a positive thing. It wasn't something negative that I was like, no, 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 no. Don't take that message home with you. But, but people are, you know, it's this kind of idea that we all sort of filter what we're hearing or reading through our own personal experiences. And then you add to this like 2000 years of history between the text and our, and our time and, I mean, it's just open to all sorts of interpretation. Absolutely. And, and to me, it's a, and once again, this whole deconversion process, I get asked this a lot, especially being interviewed in churches and getting atheists set up in churches. I get asked a lot about how, um, I get, like, what are the, what's the reason why you abandon the faith? As if I can give you one punctiliar point right where i say that's the moment or that's the reason and a lot of times it's issues of you know propositions truthfulness veracity all this logical stuff right but it's not it's not just that i mean humans are not vulcans like we it's it's also emotional heartfelt volitional willful personal stuff like to be entirely honest Christianity, as I grew up, just did not fit with my personality, my lifestyle, my desires, my hopes. It wasn't just like logical reasons. It wasn't like I'm, I'm a computer because humans are not mechanical. We're not, right. uh, you know, it, it's also other reasons. It's all kinds of reasons, personal reasons. And, and to me, that's, that's fine. You know, it, a lot of, a lot of atheists, I believe, focus a lot on like just how 
stupid or illogical or um, you know absurd some of these beliefs are and they focus on propositional value and analytic truth and sure. and and all of that and to me it's a lot more complicated than just that of course it's of course it's that of course it's the idea that i thought you know i can't believe in people rising from the dead and walking around like zombies but at the <laughs> same but at the same time it's not just that it's that it did not fit it didn't resonate with my my inner self and um to me that's 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 also equally valid not to say that everything is subjective but people don't just work in a rational vacuum people work in relationships they work in social environments they work in their particular desires and interests and things like that so it was also those things as well okay so that that brings me to a good transition because i feel like you and i have had a very similar experience except for the fact that i was really raised in the faith and you came to it more as a teenager but i think our deconversions i and i was never a calvinist i mean seventh-day adventists are like firmly arminian um, yes but I mean, in spite of those, I would say, fairly significant differences, we have had a similar uh, deconversion experience in the sense that it was, I guess I would summarize it by saying it was an effort to be true to ourselves and true to our desire to know the truth that ultimately led us away. Um, now, you spend a good deal of your time both in your project Interview an Atheist at Church and as well as, as some of your other online activity with, um, with Muslim uh, people of faith and Christians, and I would assume maybe some Jews and others as well, uh, really trying to build bridges of understanding, uh, which is super awesome. And I, you know, I was super involved in interfaith dialogue when I was a Christian and still feel like, you know, politically and in terms of the survival of the human species, this kind of uh, trust building and understanding is really what's ultimately important, knowing that we're probably never all going to agree on anything uh, perfectly, but that we do need to live together somehow. So how do you navigate? And I have a specific, more specific question about this, but like, how do you, knowing what you know and believing what you believe, uh, how do you navigate these conversations with people who are still holding on to beliefs that you consider to be fantastical or uh, sort of not in keeping with what seems like reality to you? Yeah, that's always an important question. I mean, second to the ultimate question about life and <laughs> this deep philosophical Douglas Adams type question, I feel like second to that is how do we live together with people we disagree with? Not even just like surface disagreements, but like disagreements at the atomic level, <laughs> you know, like fundamental disagreements. And to me, it comes down to a kind of pragmatic way of acting in the world that doesn't assume that other people need to comport to what I want them to be. Um, it also is a difficult balance between what some people think of as you know, principles versus pragmatism, which I think can be a false dichotomy sometimes because being pragmatic can also be a kind of principle. But it's it's complicated, right? I, I get asked this a lot, like, how do you 
what what boundaries do you have? What lines have you set up? What things will you not accept? And because life isn't mechanical, because people are so prone to certainty as I once was and, and still in some way um, am, I do not have clearly delineated boundaries. I don't – it's a – it's it's almost like a freestyle attempt. And to me, that's okay. I think fundamentally the difficulty is being able to accept that somebody might never, ever believe what you believe and being okay with that and then finding ways to work together. Now, of course, I'm not going to say that all views are equal. I'm not going to say that I'm okay or accepting of someone like Fred Phelps or Jerry Falwell or Pat Robertson or Joel Osteen or whoever, right, or John MacArthur or any of these people. Right. Um, I, th- I think that some beliefs are hazardous, they're dangerous, they're demeaning, and they're false. Um, so, but at the same time, those are a particular type of religious person where there are all kinds of other different types of religious people that have a lot more nuance, that have a lot more willingness to engage with other people that you can find tons of commonalities with, not only politically and socially, but just personally. So to me, it's a, it's kind of a, an adventure. It's not a blueprint and it, it can be difficult, right? So some of the things that I have are one being compassionate two having a sense of, um, and for me, it's, I remember being there. I don't want to be paternalistic like religious people are children and I'm an adult and I grew out and they're still children. But at the same time, I remember being there. I was I I was there. You right. know, so no, this I totally get it. This irony of the pessimistic ex believer. Like, oh my god, all these fundamentalist crazy whack jobs will never change, but I did. Wait a second. That that's ironic like <laughs> so totally and so to me it's this uh attempt to find common values and harness them it's also an attempt to en- engage and enact with what i would call a deep pluralism um and there is this totalitarian impulse that we want to go out and make everybody like ourselves and to me, that is not just a problem with religious persons. It's a problem with people. Uh, and if we can find ways to accept each other within reason, right? Like if we're talking about people that want to uh, physically harm or advocate physical harm towards other people, then there's a time to scream and shout. And as Solomon said, there's a time for anger. Sure. And And I totally am not this like, superficial pretend pluralism like oh we can all hold hands and everything's all fine in the world right but at the, but at the same time i'm not going to characterize all religious people by the fundamentalist i'm not going to say that the fundamentalist has religion right and then the moderate or the liberal or the progressive has religion wrong mm-hmm. because because once again i don't think that there's this normative center of what counts as religion and so to me, of course, the liberal and the progressive views of these traditions appeal to me, and there's lots of commonalities that we share that are untapped and, un- and not harnessed, but 
I'm also going to stand up sometimes against what I think are demeaning and dehumanizing views. So it's a, it's a tightrope it walk. Is. Yeah, it's challenging. You know? I, th- I think, and I wonder how you would respond to this. One, one sort of boundary for me is my sense of a person's honesty. Um, I have a really hard time having a, a sort of a, how would I say, like a, an, uh, an open, um, free-flowing conversation with someone who I feel is being fundamentally dishonest about um, what we both know. So, um, for instance, you know, someone who... And I, I honestly don't have anyone in particular in mind here, but so someone who, you know, maybe has a PhD in biblical studies and, uh, you know, we're talking about um, what we were talking about a moment ago about the Bible and, you know, its correspondence to reality as best we can tell. And, and they're like genuinely insisting that there's no problems with the Bible. Um, and, and I'm just like, (laughs) you're you're just not being honest or, or someone who, who says things like, you know, the Bible is divinely inspired and there's nothing homophobic there, uh, because they're a liberal, um, you know, and they don't want there to be anything homophobic there. Uh, (laughs) so they say, oh no, there's nothing homophobic in the Bible. If you just understand it properly, if you just read it the right way. And I'm like, dude, you're just not being honest. Like, what about these texts? Now, I understand you can explain them away. I used to explain them away as well. But can we just agree that it's there, you know, and that it does require this backbending for you to explain it? It's not obvious. And then if if I feel like the person won't go there with me, I feel like it's tough to have a so-called interfaith conversation with that person because I feel like their apologetic self is kicking in. If they were having a you know, a private conversation with a fellow believer, they might admit to one another like, gosh, yeah, that's a huge problem, but they won't admit it to me. And, and then I, <laughs> I, I have a hard time with that. Yeah, as you should. I, I, and once again, like with, with what I do, I primarily work with moderate to progressive religious people. I, right. I, don't, re- I don't really work with the fundamentalists because there's not much ground there. I mean, there, there, there is some, right? Like, trying to find at least some kind of common decency or respect for uh, each other as humans, tr- trying to, like, for instance, one thing I often do, since I know the Bible so damn well, is use it as a a catalyst to challenge some of their beliefs. Like, you know, Jesus uh, loving the poor, um, Jesus sitting with prostitutes, Jesus being a uh, dark-skinned Jew, you know, right, uh, right. right? like challenging this kind of white imperialist view of Jesus, you know, you can do that with the Bible itself. But then once again, there is a sense in which a lot of the liberal Christians that I work with have such an investment in the Christian identity, like, Right. The identity of being a Christian that these passages can somehow be explained away, and like there's I, a retreat, there's like a retreat to mystery. Like the minute you yes. get backed into a corner, you know they're like, well, you know, it's a mystery. And I find that almost more frustrating 
than the <laughs> fundamentalist who says, look, the Bible says, and that's just how it is. I mean, I didn't make the rules. Like, I remember when I had this heart to heart with my, um, denominational leader who ended up, uh, in a very compassionate and loving way, bidding me farewell from the ministry. Um, you know, he said, look, I have many gay and lesbian friends. I love them dearly. Look, I didn't write the Bible. You know, so it's not my problem that the Bible says this. I just believe it, and I can't reconcile the fact that the Bible says this, even though I love my gay and lesbian friends, I'm sorry, but this is what God says. To me, I have more respect for that than the person who won't admit that the Bible is deeply flawed because they have, like you said, a close investment to the Christian story and as you and I both know, it unravels fairly quickly the minute you start going down that road. So it's almost yeah. like it's almost like the monkeys, you know, see no evil, hear no evil. And and they're like, no, 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 no. It's, it's all it, it all makes sense if you just, you know, like you were using the word hermen- hermeneutics a moment ago. If you just have the right hermeneutics, it all makes sense. Yeah. That to me, the progressives almost seem more in a way dishonest and i know that's a really big word to use and i don't mean to be offensive by using the word dishonest but it just i just want this heart to heart moment with some people where i'm like can we just agree that the bible is a big big problem it's yeah. hard or with muslims the same way like i think i could get along much more easily with my you know muslim progressives if we could just have this recognition that the sacred texts of our two religions have caused so much harm and damage. And I just can't seem to get there with a lot of people. So to me, the way that I handle that or try to navigate that is also realizing that there are multiple other issues out there with like, so not only is it may be the case that the progressive will hold on to the biblical text and be like, well, God just said it. So, you know, there it is or whatever, still have this attachment to it. But then at the same time, there are other issues outside of their view of the biblical text. They may also have – they may have that view, which I can disagree with them on, but then they may have other progressive social views. They may have other progressive political views. They may have other personal interests that I, that I value as well. That's true, and so, yeah. And so once again, people are multifarious, right? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. And so to – sometimes you have to – I don't know how else to put it, but you got to work with what you've been given. And I can't expect people to just, I can't expect most or all people to, to see things the way that I do. And so I, what I'll do is I'll try to go, okay, well, you have that view of the text. Now, what else can we do? Yeah. Right? Like, what else can we do in light of and in spite of our differing views about this text? How can we better treat marginalized people? How can we talk about things like poverty or climate change or LGBT rights? What other things can we do? Because, of course, it's important to have these theological discussions about the Bible. But there's also a time in which, you know, forget it. Let's move on and try to find other ways to work together. If you're oh, not going to yeah, change, I agree with that. If, you're, if you're not going to change that view, fine. I disagree. What else can we do? Right. No, I totally agree with that. I mean, it's not like yeah. you're it's not like you're getting married to this person and you have to live with them every <laughs> single day, right? Like Well, you might you might be. Right, it's true. That's a whole nother ball of wax, you know. We don't have time to yeah. discuss that today, but but yeah, like I think, you know, I just find 
and I, you know, when I was a Christian, I was of the liberal variety toward the end of my career. And I found yes. this, I found this just as challenging among co-religionists as I do now that it was, it was like we couldn't, like the liberal by definition agrees to be open-minded about other views. I mean, that's the sort of the definition of being liberal. To be conservative really by definition means you are sort of like conserving this truth. Like you're, you're putting a barrier around the truth uh, because you feel like society is somehow attacking it or diminishing it in some way. And so your responsibility is to shore it up and protect it and, you know, keep it. You know, we see this in politics and uh, like the family, like we got to protect the traditional family. Whereas the liberal, the liberal by definition can sort of accept the fact that there are conservatives out there, but conservatives have a harder time, I feel like, and maybe I'm going to get a lot of, you know, hate mail about this, but I feel like conservatives by definition have a harder time sort of saying, well, you know, they're liberal. That's just how it goes. You know, what else can we work on together? Um, so I don't know. I think it's, there's, it, it is rare, but I think it's a beautiful thing when people who deeply disagree, whether politically, religiously, uh, or in any other cultural way can then collaborate on, say, ending homelessness or, um, you know, protecting children or whatever else it might be. Absolutely. And th- those are the, I, I call them strange connections, right? Yeah, those, that's good. Those, those strange connections that can surprise you. And those to me are the most valuable. They, they spread the most light because, for instance, like when I work with Muslims, people will be like, what the hell is this atheist finding in common with Muslims? Like they assume Muslims are like the, they're the exact opposite. They're the antipathy of atheism mm. as, you know, as if Christianity or any other form of theism isn't. Uh, but it, it's not, once again, it's all these different things. It's this fact that religious people are not just religious, they're people. Right. So once again, a lot of people get hung up on the, the religious part of religious persons. I am going to try to focus on the person's part of before religious the, persons before yeah. the before because they also have things like hopes, aspirations, investments, a um, a desire to create and uh, enact a more colorful and beautiful and brighter future. Mm-hmm. And to me. That may seem naive and optimistic, but I don't care. I'm going to err on the side of trying to trying to find those strange connections that people think might not exist but can actually exist. And a lot of that does have to do sometimes with compartmentalizing. Well, it's and- interesting. When I was doing uh, homeless services um, in my previous job, we found this strange connection as you say it's a good, it's a good expression between like liberals who wanted to end homelessness because they were outraged that we could allow people with dignity to be to be left on the side of the street right and then yeah. also like more uh like say for, exa- for example wealthier people or business people who's maybe they're, they they also care about the dignity of the person but their pressing concern is I can't run this business with four homeless people sleeping in front of my front door <laughs> so so I have like a business interest in helping them find housing right or yeah. you know a politician who may have an electoral interest in helping folks find housing and you know there's all these different you know various interests we're coming from different ideological perspectives but we we could often meet at the place of saying 
people shouldn't be homeless, right? Right. Okay. So, or at least people that don't want to be homeless should not be homeless. And, yes. And and so whether you were a Republican or a Democrat, whether you were a business executive or whether you were like, you know, you know, canvassing for Greenpeace, you could we could come to this to this place where we would say, okay, homelessness sucks. Uh, we should do something about this. And I feel like you know that's kind of the work that you're doing and that I'm also trying to do in a different kind of way. But to yeah. say, all right, you're a Muslim believer, you're a Jewish believer, you're a Christian believer, I'm an atheist, but can we agree that the world is only going to change if we change it? And is that, is that kind of where you're at? Absolutely, absolutely. And it's ironic, too, because... As an well, not really ironic, but as an atheist, there isn't any anybody else that's going to do this. There's no celestial forces. There's no spiritual guides. There's no big brother out there that's going to right the wrongs. We have to do this. Right, like meaning doesn't exist outside of people creating it. Mm. Change doesn't exist outside of people changing it. Right. So these, uh, it's 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 very uh, it's a very much a humanistic philosophy that even a lot of religious people hold. Right. Like, they, they still are compassionate and have, lots of them, compassionate, have human sentiments to help the estranged, to help the other, to help the downtrodden and the desolate, and we can find unique ways of doing this. And once again, it comes down to being able to I don't know how else to say it, but to accept radical difference, to accept pluralism in a very deep way, in a very deep sense, but then try to find ways to work beyond it. Of course, we can always crack back at the ultimate uh, bifurcation of our beliefs, like the, the ultimate philosophical foundations for why you believe this and I believe that. We can do that all day long. And I, I do think there's some merit and credit to that. Um, but at the same time, for me at this point, I feel like we can debate how many angels could dance on the head of a pin until the cows come home. But when it comes down to it, we share this world. We breathe the same oxygen. We have to find ways to work together. And that matters. It matters in a real real politics sense and that as to me that has trumped my desire to show how other people are wrong and i am right it is now about whether they believe this or i believe that what can we do right no i think that's rich Um, yeah i mean and and once again it's not a one-size-fits-all thing i get asked this like am i against the Firebrand, atheist, David Silverman, you know, I don't know, Matt Dillahunty type people or whoever, Richard Dawkins or Hitchens, you know, whatever. Am I against that? Not necessarily. I'm not necessarily saying there's no place for that. Of course, of course, there's a place for that. But it's not my thing. It's okay that one size does not fit all. Yeah, that's right. Because life isn't this way. I don't expect everyone else out there to be going, yeah. You know, I need to be like Kyle and be this soft, jovial atheist that, you know, wants to laugh and find, you know, ways to work with religious people. But I'm telling you, when I look around in the world, I feel like 
it's more important to err on the side of finding those common values than it is to err on the side of needing to show how right you are. No, I think that's great. And I, I think we need more of that. Yeah, as we're getting uh, toward the end of our time here, I, I definitely want to give you a chance to talk about, um, you know, interview an atheist at church day. How did you come up with that idea? And uh, how's that going? Oh, it's going well. I mean, it's once again, it's a one person project. I mean, there are other people that help here and there. I mean, we've had about 40 interviews over the last you know, th- four or five years. That's a lot. Uh, yeah, it's, it's been a lot. I mean, not all of them have been recorded, but I love when they're recorded so other people can watch them. But once again, yes, yeah, just YouTube, interview an atheist at Church Day, watch some of the videos. Uh, there's interview atheists.wordpress.com. Uh, there's, you can just Google it and lots of stuff pops out. But it's this way to try to find uh, common values and work together with Christians if you're an atheist or if you're a a Christian with atheists. So it's a way that I felt would de-escalate levels of tension and try to humanize atheists, humanize pastors, put flesh and blood to the idea of an atheist and the idea of a Christian and counteract those false stereotypes that are often mitigated through things like the media, popular culture, and um, the more radical or firebrand on any in any camp and try to you know try to find ways to work together and so you know i started it once again i have these two eras in my life the former youth pastor kyle and then the atheist kyle and i wanted to try to find a way to bridge the two and i thought an atheist being interviewed by a pastor at church would help do that would help put flesh and blood and counteract uh false stereotypes and all of this. So, um, so that's yeah, cool. so, so that's, that's what I do. And also you, you do this too, you know, and giving, and I appreciate what you do a lot because uh, you're giving voice to lots of these people like us who have come from a religious background and are now navigating the world with a different set of assumptions and, you know, g- giving voice to these people is vital you know, and so I, I, I thoroughly applaud what, what you do. I also think you're somewhat of a decent person, um, <laughs> despite despite what everyone else says. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, no, Thanks, I'm just kidding. Kyle. Appreciate it's that. Just, it's just At least because I have you, one friend. You got one friend. It's because you made me carne asada tacos. Dude. But um, <laughs> That was so good. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, no, I, I, I really appreciate what you do, and I'm, I'm very honored that you would have me on your podcast. Yeah, man, it's been great to have you, and uh, I I really applaud the work that you're doing as well. Um, it's not easy, and I know it comes with a lot of uh, criticism from the atheist side as well um, that you're being too soft on crime, kind of thing. And yes. uh, and I've I've actually probably joined into that fray once in a while too. Um, but I what I like about our friendship is that you know we're able to push back on each other and. Where it's not personal, like I'm not attacking you as a person, you're not attacking me or anyone else as a person, but you're you're able to sort of take on board the criticism, evaluate it, and move on. And I think we we need more of that in our world. Um, and I, I really I also want to give a huge shout out to those 40 Christian pastors or so that have been willing to let you come to their church because I want to say as a Christian pastor, 
uh, formerly, that that's not a, that's a pretty tough sell. Uh, like I'm going to have an atheist come to church today and actually talk to you about what it's like to be an atheist and why they're an atheist and all that. That's a little bit threatening, I would say, to a lot of Christians. And um, so I think it's even more courageous for those folks to invite you than it is for you to do what you're doing. It really requires courageous people of faith who don't feel threatened by a different idea uh, to say, hey, folks, we're going to take a day here or at least 15 minutes or whatever it's going to be, and we're going to explore something that's different than us and see how, you know, the other half lives, you know, kind of thing. So uh, props to those um, Christian leaders who are willing to engage different ideas and not feel overly threatened by them. Um, I think that's huge. Absolutely. And I, I totally applaud their their courage and their willingness to hear other voices. And if you, if anyone listening out there that knows a pastor that might uh, be willing to do that, please let me know, please contact me, send me an email. Um, and I would love to set them up with not only me, but all these other thousands of atheists out there that are willing to be interviewed across the U S and I would be willing, I've never done it. So I would be, willing. Oh, I'd, to be, I'd, I'd love to set you up. I would love to do that, man. Yeah, so yeah, I'll, I can, I'll yeah. put all the links to your your YouTube channel and how to get a hold of you in the show notes. Um, so okay. anybody that hears this that wants to get a hold of Kyle, uh, it'll be easy to do that. If you have a pastor friend who's you know more open minded, um, you know sometimes pastors too, and I speak from personal experience, uh, they have doubts that they can't utter themselves. They have questions about. I mean, anybody that studied the text seriously, as Kyle's been saying, you know. We had questions <laughs> that, yes. you know, that our seminary professors had a vested interest in kind of avoiding. So sometimes a pastor can invite someone else to say the thing that they're not able to say <laughs> or to open a can of worms that they're not able to open. And uh, so perhaps you have a pastor friend who's maybe struggling with some things and they're not able to approach it head on. Uh, someone like Kyle or other um, atheists that are of this ironic uh, perspective, you know, this open-minded, congenial, discussion-oriented perspective um, would be willing to come in and and have a very, un, you know, non-threatening um, conversation with with a congregation. I'm, you know, wh- while I'm thinking of it, uh, in a few weeks, um, Justin Brierly from Unbelievable uh, Radio is coming to Los Angeles. And he contacted me a few weeks ago and said, hey, I'm thinking of setting up a live show. Uh, would you be open to being the atheist? And I said, of course, that'd be great. So he's paired me. I don't know if you've seen this yet, Kyle, but he's paired me with Sean McDowell, uh, the son of Josh McDowell. Yes. Who yeah, is, I saw, uh, you saw that? Yeah, I saw that. That oh should be God. great. Yeah. So he's, I mean, it's, it's interesting because as I'm, I'm listening to some of his YouTube and reading some of the stuff he's written and he's obviously a very intelligent man and has spent his whole life like working on this stuff. But I would have had deep disagreements with him when I was a pastor. So, uh, I'm, I'm having a hard time knowing how to approach this. So we'll see what happens. I told Justin, I really want this to not be a debate, you know, quad debate, uh, but more of a seeking understanding. So like me really making an effort to understand where Sean's coming from, hopefully Sean, you know, making a real effort to understand where I'm coming from, and then maybe us being able to present some of our differences in a, you know, constructive way. But 
yeah, that's gonna be that's gonna be an interesting thing. So if anybody's listening and can be in Los Angeles, I'd love the uh, the companionship on that night because I'm a little uh, I've never done anything like this before, so I'm I'm interested in see how how it's gonna go. Absolutely, support support uh, support Ryan. Definitely, <laughs> I'm gonna need it. Definitely. Oh my gosh! Well, thanks, man. I know you got to run, so uh, thanks for making the time uh, to come on the show. Uh, I uh, really appreciate the work you're doing, and we'll catch up with you uh, down the road. All right, sounds good, Ryan. Thank you very much. Yes, good stuff. Thank you so much, Kyle. Appreciate you coming on the show and uh, sharing with us. I will put links to all of Kyle's interesting projects in the show notes, including his social media and more information about Interview an Atheist at Church Day. And uh, if you would be interested uh, in uh, contacting Kyle about any of the work that he's doing, um, I know he would appreciate hearing from you. If you know a church that would be potentially interested in hosting Kyle or another uh, atheist that would that partners with Kyle's work to have a conversation at a church. I know Kyle would love to hear from you about that as well. Uh, so follow him on social media, stay in touch with what he's up to, and uh, reach out to him as you need to. Um, thanks again so much for tuning in. Uh, to learn more about Life After God, you can, of course, visit our website, where there is a complete archive of all of our episodes, as well as other interesting information that will be growing and changing over the next few weeks. We are at lifeaftergod.org. Also, our social media pages are very active, thanks to the aforementioned Brian Peck. And uh, I would suggest that you follow our Facebook page. We have nearly 10,000 followers now on our Facebook page. You can find us at facebook.com slash ourlifeaftergod, O-U-R, lifeaftergod. Twitter is the same, at Our Life After God. So follow us on social media. Stay in touch with what we're doing. Uh, stay tuned next week for a really interesting conversation with Brian on the anniversary of the Life After God podcast. And, um, you know, I would say pray for me, but I don't think it'll do any good. But I, I could certainly use your moral support for the 27th of August if you can come and join me at uh, Everyday Church, or no, wait, Church Every Day in uh, Northridge, California, on the 27th uh, for my conversation with Christian apologist Sean McDowell. I would really, uh, really appreciate that. So hit me up if you want more information about that. Uh, there's a Facebook event page that I'll link to, and you can reply there and get all the information and go to the Eventbrite and get a ticket and all the rest. If you appreciate the work we're doing, um, it's quite time-consuming, and uh, I've been increasingly busy with other um, projects and work, um, I could really use your support. Thanks especially to those of you that have already uh, gone to the Patreon page and made a financial contribution of whatever amount you can afford uh, to support this podcast. Um, cheers to you, and you really make this uh, possible for me to do. If you haven't done that yet and you'd like to show your support for this show, it's like a little tip jar for the work that we're doing at Life After God. You can go to Patreon dot com slash life after God and make a one time and make a monthly recurring donation. We would be so grateful for that. It really means the world to us, both financially, but also it just lets us know how much you appreciate uh, the work that we're doing. I'm also going to be back with some more uh, X-Files episodes coming up. Uh, also in the near future, Mike McHargway, who some of you know as Science Mike, has a new book out, and I'll be speaking to him about his new book. That, will, that episode will air on the launch of his, of his new book. 
and a few other authors that I have lined up and some other exciting X-Files conversations that are in the works. So uh, subscribe to the podcast at Spreaker.com slash Life After God. Subscribe to our social media so that you don't miss anything. Thanks again for tuning in. I really appreciate the devotion of your time and energy to this. And thanks for writing to me and uh, letting me know what you think. Until next time, uh, my name is Ryan Bell, and this has been the Life After God podcast. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.